Good evening. Uh, welcome to uh, uh, the first of uh, our program for this quarter. Uh, I'm not going to uh, uh, detail the rest of these programs. They're on here. And if you are on our mailing list, you will be receiving uh, announcements. Uh, just want to mention two events. Uh, one is uh, the Beta Prize, November 7th at uh, 7 o'clock in the Alumni Center. Iraja Pesachzad is this year's winner of the Beta Prize. He will be receiving the prize, and uh, Parviza Sayyad will be talking about creating the role of uh, Astullah Khan. Uh, and uh, Mr. Pesachzad himself will be reading one of his uh, works. Um, we have also a panel uh, discussion about Simina Behbani. As you know, Simina Behbani traveled to Stanford several times, was the first winner of the Beta Prize. And on November, on December 13th, we have uh, a panel with uh, Farzaneh Milani, uh, Mary Hotspi, Omide uh, Behbani, the daughter of Simina Behbani, Kaveh Safa, uh, and uh, Professor Beza will be uh, reciting a poem he has written uh, in memory of uh, Behbani. I also want to tell you that uh, next, this January, January 17th and 18th, Saturday and Sunday, we are going to be uh, having a play reading of a new play by Professor Bezai. Uh, it is called Ardabirak's Report. Report. It has a cast of 20, uh, and the tickets for that event will be going on sale, I think, by mid next week. And I suggest you get on to it, because it is a remarkable, I think, historic event. Uh, our speaker tonight is uh, a man that is very difficult to uh, introduce without sound, sounding hyperbolic. Uh, whatever I say about him will sound like I am waxing hyperbolic, but I, I'm not. Uh, he's truly a unique gentleman scholar. He's a unique gentleman philanthropist. He's a unique gentleman political activist. He is as likely to write a remarkable book on Mitraic uh, rights as he is to sue the federal government of the United States for unduly searching Iranians at the airport. Uh, he is as likely to come and talk for us as he is to donating a very big uh, collection to many museums that he has been a very, very generous philanthropic contributor to. Uh, I think the best way I can describe him is that he is uh, a man dedicated to Iran. He is a true patriot. He is a man who believes that patriotism is best served by erudition. So he's an erudite patriot who believes that the best form of patriotism is through erudition. So we all owe him a great debt. I'm very thankful that he has come. Please join me to welcome the Secretary Sudan. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been 45 years since I've left Stanford, and one thing has not changed is the quad, but the level of praise <laughs> that Dr. 
Milani has bestowed on me tonight is, is much above what is deserved, really. But I would like to thank him for inviting me. It's a privilege and a pleasure. Um, I wrote this book after 10 years of studying and with many difficult subjects to tackle. So there are a lot of controversial matters in there, but what I would like to do tonight is just give you a narrative. It's slightly the opposite of what is in the book. In the book, I try to argue point by point and work my way up. This time, I'm going to work my way down through a narrative. Um, and I will begin with the Shahnameh. This is a, an epic, in, um, a versified epic that is supposed to be the reflection of the history of Iranians' past kings. But when you look at the Shahnameh inside, you would see tales of kings fighting demons, demons imprisoning a king, as you see up there, the king Kavus is imprisoned. And then a hero comes to um, liberate him. And then they are fighting. Uh, it's really the enemy that has been demonized here in the way that today the enemies of the states are labeled as terrorists. We, we have a feel that these are real peoples but have been labeled as demons. And it is even more strange because the word that we're giving to these demons in Persian is div. And this div is a word that comes from the Indo-European root that has given a lot of similar words. In India, in Sanskrit, Deva is a positive God. In Latin, Deus is God. In French, Dieu is God. It's only in Iran, which this God has been demonized, and it's a bad God. And it didn't start right away. In the older part of the Avesta, which is the holy book of Zoroastrianism, it is not that negative. It becomes totally negative in the writing of the Achaemenids. And then in New Persian, it's, the, it's totally negative. So to understand what happened, something drastic must have happened. It, it, in the normal course of history, go, good gods are not turned into bad gods by a flick of a switch. It's, it's something drastic must have happened. And to understand this, I will go back to um, circa 700 BC, where Assyria was dominating the area. Assyria was the bully on the block. They were attacking everybody. They were imprisoning everybody. They were looting everybody. And around it, there were a number of different um, principalities, countries, nations that decided to gang up. And these were the Medes, the Persians, and the Babylonians, and some other little nations around it. In the year 614 BC, they attacked Assyria. <coughs> they invade Assyria. It's principally the Medes. They sacked the capital Nineveh. And overnight, Media becomes an empire that is stretched from almost the beginning of Turkey, eastern Turkey, all the way to Afghanistan. 
and then Babylonia. Babylon is now their ally, and they are now expanding westward all the way up to Jerusalem, where they imprison the Jews and bring them back to Babylon. And then there are the Persians, who are somewhere below the Median Empire. As you see, it's that blue section. And I will talk about them a little bit later. As media becomes an empire, a new kingdom requires a new ideology. And their ideology is based on two gods, Mithra and Apamnapat. Mithra is a day god. Apamnapat is the night god. They divide the world into two realms, night and day. As such, a symbol of Mithra is the sun, and a symbol of this god, Apamnapat, is the moon. Also, you have different symbols that qualify each of these gods. Light and fire qualify Mithra. Water qualifies Apamnapat. In fact, the very name Apamnapat, it has two components, Ap, which is Ab, or water today in Iran, and Napat, which has given us Nave in Persian, which means grandchild, and nephew in English. So it's basically sun. It means the child of the waters. Apamnapat means the child of the waters, and as such, water is a symbol of Apamnapat. And then other symbols have been created for these two gods, like the lotus and the sunflower. As you see, uh, sometimes very much combined together, because these two gods become very much intertwined with each other. And then there is the lion, which has always been, in, in most cultures, a symbol of the sun. And we have the bull or cow as the symbol of Apamnapat. Why? It's because cow in Old Persian was called gao. It's the same word that has given cow in English. And uh, when at nighttime they would look in the sky, the moon the whiteness of the moon was called Gao Chitra. That means bright as milk, because Gao referred to both cow and the milk. So the cow and the bull became associated with Apamnapat. So there you had a variety of symbols that are now associated with these two gods that become the primary tandem god in the Median kingdom or empire. But there is another ideology that has to be combined into that. And that is something that is by nature a tribal ideology. It's something like the um, movie Star Wars, the force. May the force be with you. It's a live force that the Iranian tribes who came from Siberia thought that would give you power. If the hero has a victory, it increases his power. And that power is called khwarna in Old Persian. Today, we call it far. If he increases that far by victory, that also increases the source of that power, the source of that force, which was called the Aryan Khwarna. It belonged to the tribe. It is something that you can, I could find in, among the Mongols, among the Turkmens, and all of these tribes have come down to Siberia. So my next uh, investigation was 
Do we have it among Native American Indians? And in, in fact, the, the Sioux and the Crow have something very similar. In the image that you see um, at the bottom, you have the three stages of this tribal myth. When it is underwater, it is kept as a fire or light, and the best way to imagine that is as a pearl. So what you see uh, on the bottom row, you have a row of pearls. Then this, in order to be released, it has to come out of the water, and what will bring it out of the water is a stack of lotus, and it comes out then into the sky as a sunflower, and once it in, 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 it's in the sky, it can, that light can hit anybody, and if it hits somebody, he is the powerful man, he is the king, he is the victor. Now, that pearl underwater is the it's kept underwater by a Pamnapat. Here, there's a fusion of this tribal concept with these two gods that we have, because they sort of match very well. If it is underwater, the guardian of it is a Pamnapat. And sometimes you have, as the guardian of the pearl, this shape of a shell that you see on the right side. That's a symbol of Hobnapat, and I'll come back to that later on. So the shell is the guardian of the pearl. And then you have Mithra, who is the one who will bestow the fire in order to empower people. So this is an ideology that existed prior to the uh, rise of the Achaemenids, who come from Persia. Now, the last of the Medians is a man called Astyages. In Iran, it was called Ajitahak, Bibarast, a number of different names, and at the end, they gave him an Arabic name, Zahak. He is the last of the Median emperors, and as such, he has matrimonial alliances with the king of Lydia, with the king of Armenia, with the king of Babylon, but also with one of the Persian kings, he is the king of Anshan. Where is Anshan? It's that left part of the Persian Empire. And in Iran, in, in Persia, you have a dynasty that was founded by a certain priest king called Achaemenes. And the progeny of this Achaemenes went into two branches. A main branch, which is what I call the Parsa branch, and a junior branch. Parsa is what they define themselves. It meant not Persian. Persian is what became known afterwards. Parsa meant a fire priest. But he was a warrior priest. As you see that golden plaque, you have a priest which has a weapon. It's not the normal Zoroastrian priest. He is a warrior priest. And this was called Parsa because he was near the fire and he was the keeper of the fire. So you had a branch that was from father to son, the Parsa branch. And on the other side, you had another branch. 
Like in the Bakhtiari tribe, you had a main Khan, and the next valley, it was a cousin who was a junior branch. Now, as it happened, in the junior branch, because of the matrimonial alliances that they formed with Astyages, the daughter of Astyages was married to Cambyses one, this one here. And the issue of this marriage is Cyrus. So Cyrus is the grandson of Astyages, but also the son of Cambyses of Persia. So in a way, he has the legitimacy of the Median Empire and the Persian Empire. This Persian Empire is also a form of different principalities, in fact, we have two golden plaques from two of these kings, Arsamis and Ariaramnes. These are the forefathers of Darius, where they call themselves king of kings. And on top of that, they were, they're saying, not only we're king of kings, but we're also parcel. They are the parcel line. These plaques show two things. First, compared to the Medes, they have a script, which is the old Persian scripts. The Medes don't have a script. So it shows a certain sophistication. But also, they invoke the power of a new god, Ahura Mazda. Ahura Mazda is an abstract god. And that shows a level of sophistication. Because usually you have a god, god of the winds, god of the uh, waters, and so forth. But when you have an abstract god, it's already a, a sophisticated god. So in a way, the Persians are perhaps more intellectually sophisticated than the Medes. As it happens, Cyrus attacks his own grandfather. He conquers the Median Empire. And then he conquers Lydia, he conquers Babylon, and he becomes the emperor of almost the whole of Asia. Now, he is facing his cousin, Arsamis, who has the title King of Kings. It's a dilemma. So, Arsamis, de facto, is no more King of Kings. He retires to his job as parson. We have a reflection of these in later um, history books, like Gardizia and so forth. So he retires. And as a result, his son, the one he's called Vishtaspa, shall never be king. He shall only be prince, and he shall be only a parson. And his son will be Darius, who in due time will become king. Now, there's a big difference between Cyrus and the rest of the Achaemenids from Darius onwards. On, Cyrus, on the tomb of Cyrus, you see a symbol that is a combination of lotus and sunflower. As I explained, these two flowers pertain to the two gods, Mithra and Aparnapa. So this is the most important expression of a man on his tomb of what his ideology is. He is basically following the median ideology of two gods, Mithra and Aparnapak. On the other hand, all of the Achaemenes from Darius onwards, they have on their tombs a scene where the king is appearing 
a bow in hand, it's an arm in hand, he's the warrior priest next to the fire, and he's invoking one god, Ahura Mazda. And it's nighttime because you have moon. All these ceremonies of fire were, were in open air and under the blue sky or on the dark sky of the night, and you had the moon there. So there's a break in ideology between the Parshas and the Cyrus branch who, upon conquering, uh, when it, they conquered media, they kept the Median ideology. Cyrus decided to keep the Median bureaucracy, the Median ideology, and he became a sort of successor to Astyages. Now, imagine that Cyrus, despite his Median ideology, has come to power, and then his son as well, but the rest of the family are parcels. They believe in Ahura Mazda. Little by little, the parcel branch is now also asking for a, share, a fair share of the power. Um, and there will be inevitably a clash between the Median priesthood and the parcel priesthood. That clash develops when the son of Cyrus combines he went to conquer Egypt, and on his way back, he somehow dies en route back to Iran. In the meantime, his brother Bardia is killed. There are different possibilities, either by the order of Cambyses or somehow he is killed. When these two disappear, the line of Cyrus is terminated. So, who is going to be king? It seems that the Median priest, fearing the hegemony of the Parsas, decide to have a coup d'etat. They take the reins of power, and one of them pretends that he is the deceased Bardia. In a matter of months, people know that this is not true, and a seven conspirators, seven of the top Persian nobility decide to do away with this usurper Median priest that was called Gamaut. Among them is one Otanes, who is the brother-in-law to Cyrus, father-in-law to Cambyses. He's the most noble of the Persians. And there is this young man, 28 years old, Darius, and a few others. Mount a counter coup, they kill, the way Herodotus says, they kill uh, Gamata, and the next day there is what he describes as Magophonia. They start to massacre the Median Magi, the Median priesthood. They massacred. That massacre was a sort of earthquake in the Persian history, an earthquake that split the Iranian society into two, and the tremors of that earthquake is still felt in today, and as, as I shall explain. So, Darius now comes to power because among these seven, they have, decide, they have to decide who's gonna be king. The only one who has the legitimacy is Darius because he is from the line of the Parsons the main line of the Achaemenids, and that's what he, in every inscription, he insists on. He says, I'm Parsa, son of Parsa, in 
opposition to Cyrus who was not. He is sort of down-looking of Cyrus for the junior branch to have taken over the main branch and have to have put aside his grandfather. Now, in his first declaration after there are a lot of uh, uprisings against Darius, he finally, after putting down all these uprisings, he has the, uh, in Bisutun on the top of the mountain, he shows all the kings that he had, all the rebels that he has been able to crush and <coughs> defeat. And he invokes the power of Ahura Mazda. It's thanks to Ahura Mazda that he has been able to um, kill all these rebels. And now he has to promote his new religion, Ahura Mazda. But he, they don't have a religion except that they think that Ahura Mazda is a great god. And they start experimenting. If you see in that little image up there, one experiment is they try to give to Ahura Mazda a sun emblem, a sun power. And in fact, it's the sun emblem of the uh, Mesopotamian god Shamash. This is the first and last time that he's going to do that because it's backfire. No, nobody accepts Ahura Mazda as a sun fire, as a sun god. And so from then on, he will ne never do that. And what you have is an Ahura Mazda like the one underneath, which doesn't have that sun symbol. So it, it, this is a symbol of gods throughout the Middle East and all the way to Egypt. It's a symbol that they create that they didn't have before. They borrow it, but it's a symbol that has a meaning among Babylonians, about Elamites, about among uh, uh, Assyrians. Everybody understood that this was the god. This is the god. This is the symbol that he decided to have um, Mazda represented with. And then he builds Persepolis. And in Persepolis, you see the expression the political expression of Darius in the forms of three huge uh, sculptures that you have, bas-reliefs that you have in his main audience hall um, in Persepolis. He is grappling with three types of animals. First the two in color on the left and the one on the right. The two on the left, you see a lion and a bull he is killing them. And along with that, in the foundation of Persepolis, he throws coins that have a bull and a lion on them. These are Lydian coins. It's as to he is burying this division of day and light that the Median had uh, promoted. For him, he's got a theological problem. If Ahura Mazda is the unique god, you cannot have a division between day and night. So he buries this in the foundation, and above, he is killing the bull and the, um, the lion, which were the symbols of this day and night division. On the other hand, what you see on the right hand is him killing a beast, and that beast is representative of the Median Magi, that Gaumata. Uh, what I argue is, especially, you, you, he has a tail which is a scorpion, 
And the scorpion and the snake were very much intertwined with, this, uh, with the symbols of the Median Magi, as, as we shall see later. So, in the beginning, we had the word div that had only a negative connotation in Iran and a positive connotation elsewhere. Here, this image of the Median priest, the Gaumata with whom he's grappling, and in fact, this is exactly the way Herodotus describes that in killing Gaumata, they had daggers and they, he was grappling with him. And in fact, somebody else kills him, but he, Darius, was grappling with Gaumata. So in a way, this shows how Darius personally was grappling with Gaumata, the usurper. And that image becomes the image of the div, the demon. It comes all the way to, down to the Persian miniatures on the left side. It's a bad image, the image of the demon. But the center one is what you will see in several Mithraeums. Mithraeums are the topic that I shall discuss next. But there, in the Mithraeum, that same div-like sculpture has a positive connotation. So this is the divide. Uh, that div is the one that Darius did not like. He killed, but elsewhere, that div is still a good one. Now, a more clever way to deal with this problem of division between night and day is to say that this is a perpetual motion. And they invented uh, this iconic figure that is in Persepolis. It's huge, it's beautiful, and you have a bull, a, a lion attacking the bull, but the bull is not, he is he's not finishing him off. You see that the, the bull is coming back. It's a perpetual revolution of night and day. Unlike what you see at the bottom, usually you have a lion devouring a, a bull. Here, the bull is ready to come back, and it was uh, accompanied with slogans. And that slogan that the bull and the um, lion represent a day and night revolution. And you see in these seals that above the bull and light, you really have the symbol of the sun and the moon. Now, uh, to um, explain the development of the religious ideology in, um, during the Achaemenes, I would like to take you some 2,000 years forward in the um, Safavid period. That's when Shiism became the official religion of Iran. Uh, as it happened, a young man of 12 years old, Shah Ismail, uh, he defeats his um, own family of kings. And he, um, when he ascends to the throne of Iran, he uh, proclaims Shiism as the official um, religion of Iran. But that Shiism is not well understood by him nor his followers, who are dervishes from the Safavid uh, clan. All they know is that they have a reference, a, a strong reverence for the Imam Ali, who is the cousin of the Prophet, and who is supposedly his successor. They have this reverence for the Imam Ali to the extent that it overshadows the Prophet Muhammad and God himself. And Ali is almost God, and Ismail is God incarnate. So 
Now they proclaim Shiism, but they don't know what Shiism is. It takes them about three months to find one uh, treatise on Shiism. And then they don't have any priests. So they have to import the priest from Lebanon. One is Karaki, and then they um, import a few other ones. And little by little, this clan of um, theologians that come from Lebanon, they intermarry with the Safavid dynasty, they become powerful, they become numerous, and they establish a dynasty on the, of their own. And by the end of that dynasty, you would see this mullah, Muhammad Bagher Majlisi, who's sitting next to the king. One generation later, the Afghan comes, um, and this Safavid uh, dynasty is terminated. It is total chaos for about 50 years, or almost 80 years. And in that period, the Shiite clergy develops a new ideology, the result of which is the Velayat Fariq that we have uh, today, and uh, it's the Islamic Republic of Iran. In that ideology, kingship was pushed was pushed down, religion was pushed up, and so the power and the balance of power shifted from kingship to priesthood. Exactly the same thing happened in the Achaemenid period. When Darius came, he didn't have a packaged religion. All he knew was Ahura Mazda the same way as the uh, Safavids promoted Ali. They didn't have a religion. And they had wait and use the Zoroaster clergy, and I will talk about where they come. So these were clergy that came from the north, and they helped them to develop a certain uh, ideology, a certain religion. But it took some time. And meanwhile, the king, as the Safavid king, is on top of everything, on top of religion, on top of the um, temporal power, as well as the religious power. And then comes Alexander. There is a void after Alexander. In that period, about 100 years after Alexander, where you have Macedonian kings and so forth, this Zoroastrian clergy, who has no more the Achaemenids sitting on top of it, decides to shift the balance of power again from kingship to priesthood. They push kingship down. They push religion up. How do they do that? Before I explain that, where was Zoroaster? Zoroaster was in the, in the middle of a Median Empire and preaching uh, almost a new religion, but at least the supremacy of Ahura Mazda during Astyages' time. He's a troublemaker. Astyages goes and chases him away from his land. He has to go somewhere. Where does he go? He goes to Persia, as I said. The kings in Persia, they had a reverence for Ahura Mazda. So he goes there with some priesthood. He, we don't know he's well received or not. There is a lot of um, initial unwelcome reaction. But eventually, it seems that he gains the favor of the father of Darius, Vishtaspa, and also perhaps his daughter. If we go back to Pasargade, Pasargade is where Cyrus created an academy of Parsas. Pasargade is 
the Greek pronunciation of Parsa Kadak. Parsa Kadak is the dwelling of the Parsa. He created an academy there. Parsa Pasargada was not his capital, it was just a small academy of Parsons. And in there, because it's Cyrus who creates there, he puts as the expression of his ideology his two gods, Mithra and Apamnapat. I argue that you have one symbol, is the one on the right, which is still existing today. That is a symbol of Mithra. And the one on the left is, which you see, a fishtail. That's Apamnapat. Now, th this crown that has Mithra in here is a peculiar crown. It's uh, Egyptian-inspired. But why would they put a very elaborate crown on Mithra? It's because everywhere, when you want to give importance to the god, you inevitably copy the crown and the robes of the king. Like what you see on the left side, the Virgin Mary and Jesus, their crown. It's not the, a crown that existed in Jerusalem. It's, it's a medieval crown that existed in Europe. So in order to give them importance, they copied that crown for them. And that's what they did in Pasargade. They put a crown that I argue this is the crown of uh, Astyages. And so Astyages for Zoroastrians is enemy public number one because he's the one who drove Zoroaster out of his domain. Zoroaster was the prince of his domain which was somewhere south of Tehran, Raga, or today we call it Rain. And from there he was pushed down. He came to Persia. And as I said, he got involved with the Persian aristocracy, which does for Zoroastrians, this was the crown of Astyages. And when they transformed Astyages into a demon, into a dragon, they also developed the tale that as this demon had two snakes growing out of his shoulders. Where did they get this idea? Because if you look at that crown, you have two snakes. It's the array, the Egyptian array. They brought those two snakes and planted them on his shoulders. And that's how a myth is developed, that you have Zahak or Astyages as a king with two snakes out of his shoulders. Now, what do uh, the Zoroastrians do at this stage? They want to push kingship up, uh, kingship down and uh, priesthood up. They completely redefine the history of Iran, the history of the kings. They have a constraint, and they're doing that somewhere around 100 or 200 AD. They have, by this time, a bracket that Zoroaster first preached his religion 258 years before Alexander. That's a constraint appears in 15 different ways, both in Zoroastrian literature and non-Zoroastrian literature. So they believed in that. That's a bracket they have. Now, if you have this bracket and you want to fill it with the list of kings, 
they decide to wipe out all the kings they didn't like and to plug in their friends. And these, even if they had never reigned. So, Vishtaspa, who's named Goshtasp there, who never reigned, is plugged in. Cyrus, the Medes, and everybody is wiped out. And then they also plug in this girl, Humai. Nobody knows what this Humai is, is in Persian history and so forth. You have to reconstruct who this Humai is. Then the result is once you wipe out a lot of kings and you can only plug in a few others, you have to inflate their reign. So that's why you have reigns that are 120 years or 112 years. They all understood that these are irrealistic numbers, but they put it in because veracity was not what they were after. They created a list of kings according to whom they liked and whom they did not like. Now, this Homai, um, I've reconstructed, the, the, the main problem is, uh, in Greek, she's called Amitis. Old Persian name is Homaiti. Now, it is transformed into Homai. When the Arabic script was used, Homati was sometimes even spelled Homani because the dots were uh, moved from left to right. And the problem is there were about four different Homais. One was the daughter of Darius, one was his granddaughter, one was his sister, and perhaps uh, Astyages also had a daughter by the name of Amitis or Homai. One of these, who is the sister of Darius, seems to be the one that was very close to Zoroaster. That closeness is, there are about two or three, three sources that define her as very close to Zoroaster. There's only one source that says that maybe she was, she became the wife of Zoroaster. It's, for a variety of reasons, I think it is right, but it's only one source, so it's problematic. But the fact is, she never reigned, and nevertheless, they plugged him, plugged her into the uh, list of Persian kings. Now, now the Achaemenid kings are no more there. The Zoroastrians are trying to create a religion. Uh, their religion is restrictive because it's only one god. In Safavid time, when Shah Ismail came, 90% of Iran was Sunni, and he forcefully pushed Shizm into it. So is the, it's the same situation in Achaemenid time. 90% of Iran is worshipping other gods, and very few are worshipping Aramazda. So nobody is really following this religion, and the Zoroastrian priests we're clever enough to say, okay, if we want to bring everybody in, we'll create an all-encompassing religion that will bring, you're worshiping Mithra, come on in. We all also accept Mithra. You worship Tishriya, come on in. And they bring all these hymns into one package that is called the Avesta. But they have to sanitize them because if they are said in their own hymns that they're all powerful, they 
cut that section out. As a result, they create a religion that is the opposite of what Zoroaster had preached. Zoroaster was in love with his own God. When I first read the Goddess of Zoroaster, I thought that this is like Haji Abdullah Ansari. It is Sufi who is lamenting for his God, for one God. And now you have a Avesta which has a multitude of gods. Uh, they're all below Angravasta, but this is not what Zoroaster wanted. So it's probably something that already existed at the end of the uh, Achaemenid regime, because if you see at that uh, image, that it's, it's an earring in, in Boston Museum. In the center, you have Ahromazda. But all around him, you have different deities. They are deities because they are in the sky. They're riding over the moon. And they're all saluting Ahromazda. So they're all uh, the inferior to Ahromazda. He is superior to them. And at the bottom, you would see that combination of lotus and sunflower that is still treated as, as a dual god, as a tandem god. And it is that symbol is also put on a crescent, so it's really a deity. So by the end of the Achaemenid time, you had this ideology that was trying to bring in every uh, creed into the royal ideology, now becoming gradually Zoroastrianism. And so the Zoroastrian priesthood decided to package all this together. So now you have, you started with uh, two gods, you went to one god that was Ahromazda, now you have a multitude of gods. Uh, one thing is very peculiar in the Avesta because you, you think this is this should be the real repository of the Zoroastrian religion. Now, today the Zoroastrian please, the priest is called Mobat. That started from a word that was Magu, and Mobat is Magubed, the head of the Magu. And Magu is the word that has given Magi in English and the word magician because they thought that these magi were magicians. In every Iranian language, the priest has a name which is a derivative of magu. In every Iranian text, he has a name that is a derivative of magu, except in the Avesta. The Avesta, magu does not exist. Why? Because they had massacred all the magus. The magus were the median magus, so nobody could have that name. They could not name themselves Parsa, because that was the prerogative of the Achaemenid king. Zoroaster called Parsa by another name, by an old Indo-Iranian name, Kavi, which was a priest. So that was the name that Zoroaster gave to the Parsas. But the Zoroastrian priesthood invented a new name, Athraban, which was exactly a parallel to Parsa. Athravan meant the one who was the keeper of the fire. Keeper of the fire is exactly like Parsa. They invented that name. But it's something 
pushed from above. The population never reacted, never accepted that. That's why by Sasanian time, the priesthood was again called Mobat. They never accepted this Atraban. Atraban never became popular because it was something that was a decision on the top. People continued to call them Magu or Mobat, even though all the Magus were massacred. Now, in bringing all these gods into this Avestan mold, they were successful in doing that, except for one god, Apamnapat. Because Apamnapat had a real problem from day one for the Darius and Zoroastrianism. Apamnapat was the creator god. Imagine in the desert that is Iran, life comes out of water. So it's very natural that the god of creation was Apamnapat. Apamnapat was the creator god, and now that Ahura Mazda is presented as the god who was the creator and all-powerful ever over everything, there was a clash. Apamnapat had to be pushed out. So for a long time, there is no talk about Apamnapat, except that if you want to invoke the far, if you want to be powerful and empowered by the far, somebody has to release that far from underwater. You need an aquatic god. That's why they pushed Apamnapat out and introduced a new goddess of the waters, Anahita, towards the end of the Sabbath. But uh, accumulate uh, period. But not everybody accepted that. There were, seems to have been two school of thoughts. One say, let's bring in Apamnapat while we, while we shave off everything that sort of put him against Ahura Mazda. The others were saying, the more radical were saying, no, we'll replace it by, Ahura, uh, by Anahita. The others were saying, no, let's have a compromise and keep all of that. And that, you can see this tension between the two, all the way down to the Sasanian period. The more radical is pushing for Anahita, the less radical is still uh, accepting um, Apamnapat. Now, the main casualty in this Magophonia, this massacre of the Medians, is institu an institution uh, that I call the Mithraic societies, these were brotherhoods. They had the name Mithra not because they were Mithra worshippers, because this brotherhood, as you have the fraternities here, these brotherhoods required initiation rites. In order to enter the brotherhood, you had to go to initiation and take an oath. That oath was guaranteed by Mithra. Mithra, by its very name, is the Lord of the Covenant. Uh, what time is it? 720. 720. 720, okay. Okay. Uh, the, the thing is, is, is uh, way too late. Um, so Mithra was the guarantor of the oath taken. He was not a god that they worshipped. But in that frenzy where they were massacring all the Median Magi, 
all the, all the brotherhoods who were associated with Mithra were also persecuted and chased. So they went literally underground, especially in Anatolia. They went into caves. They became brotherhoods in caves, secret organizations. And in the Roman and Greek world, they gave it a plastic representation as statues or paintings. You see Mithra killing the bull there on the left side. On the right side, you have another one where you have snakes and scorpions going toward the bull. These uh, caves or underground spaces is something you have there. It's in Cryptobalbi in Rome. Under, uh, it, it, it shows how the structure of these mithraeums, as they were called, these caves were called mithraeums. You have at the very top the head of the mithraeum, he is having a robe that is red and a hat which is exactly like Mithra, a red bonnet. It's called the Phrygian bonnet. In that structure you can see in a chivalry order in the 1500s in France, the order of the Golden Fleece. You have the same organization. On the top is sitting red robe, red hat, the red bonnet. What makes these brotherhoods so um, resistant to change and how, what gives them this endurance? The main thing is they are not pursuing a religion. Their religion is brotherhood. And if need be, they can sacrifice Mithra and they will take their oath in the name of Christ. They will take their oath in the name of Allah in order to preserve the brotherhood. That's more important. These Mithraeums, you see in this map, it, it's all over Europe, England, France, everywhere. Hundreds of them are in Rome alone. It was a very popular and important movement and organization in the Roman Empire. It has left a very large footprint there. In Iran, the footprint is different. It's as important, it's not in the form of plastic representation. It's in the form of, in the spirit of the dervishes, the brotherhoods that we have as, um, they were called the Ayars, they were called the Chartiers, we have the wrestlers, they're the guilds, and so forth. In Europe, they transformed into chivalry orders. Now, what is common between them are three characteristics. The initial initiation rites, which I talked about. And then there's a hierarchy, and then there are symbols. These continue in these different organizations, in the avatars of these brotherhoods, without them understanding exactly from where they came. At the head, you have a fatherly figure which is always named something like father. Bab, Bab, Baba, still in Persian, all of these mean father. And then in Roman situation, it's called pater. In Turk, Dede, it's the name of the father. 
And then when you want to call, make it Arabic, you call him Sheikh. And in some regions of Iran, you, in, the Pedar or father is called Piar in the, the lower district or, or north of Iran is called. All of these were names that meant father. So if you have a father that is sitting on top, everybody else under him is his son, and therefore they're brothers one to another. That's why you have a brotherhood. So in this brotherhood, you have a structure where you have a father on top. And they have symbols that are common to a lot of them. One of them is this three-dot symbol. You see, in the Ottoman Empire, it becomes very important. That's three-dot, I argue that it is coming from a combination that we call the Winter Triangle. It's in the constellation of Canis Mayor. You see it in Freemasonry at the bottom left on the swords of the Order of the Golden Fleece. You see it on Sasanian coins. You see it on dervishes as a tattoo mark on here. There, in all the brotherhoods, they appear one way or the other. They don't necessarily understand where it came from. But these are symbols that solidify the procedure by which this brotherhood becomes very cohesive and loyalty is bred through the um, brotherhoods. The most important activity of these brotherhoods is the communal meal. You see the dervishes on that miniature on the right. They have a communal meal where they distribute the meal, and everybody is participating in that meal. Now, this meal, usually it's a lamb who's brought in and is slaughtered, but according to a certain ceremonial procedure. As a, as a result, this ceremonial procedure gives a certain holiness to that lamb. And so not only the meat is consumed, but the residue is then holy. And all the dervishes use this sheepskin. They use it on their shoulders. You see in that miniature, they've got it on the shoulders. They've got it as a bonnet. It's something holy. But all the orders and all the avatars of these brotherhoods have the lamb or the skin or the leather as some kind of symbol that relates it back to these Mithraic orders. Uh, on the right side, on top, you see an Indian warrior wrestler, Pahlavan uh, we call him, who is being initiated. He's drinking wine. He has a leather apron. On, in the central part, you've got Turkish wrestlers. They're having a um, short um, pants that are in leather. At the bottom, you have Sufi dervishes who are sitting on a sheepskin. That sheepskin, in the dervishes today, call it pustacht, the skin throne. It's, for them, it's their throne. They're sitting on it, their throne. But to protect themselves, they call it sometimes sajjade, a prayer rock in Islamic terms. But when you have, uh, in the process of question and answers, you ask, the novice has to say, answer this question, what is the pustah, or what is the sajjade? They say, well, the sajjade is the same as pustah. They know that they've given it an Islamic name in order to protect themselves. And you have 
in the order of the golden fleece, the very symbol, the golden fleece, is a fleece. So now each of these are in a new environment. One is in a Christian environment, the other one in an Islamic environment. How do they protect themselves? Uh, the order of the golden fleece is very uh, interesting because as you see on the top left, you have the sovereign or the head of the organization which is sitting on top. But the second in command is a bishop. By statute, he is the one who takes the oath. He's a bishop. And now this bishop has a main problem because the golden fleece is a pagan emblem and he has to justify it. So how do they justify it? He opens the Bible and he looks around. In the book of Gideon, there is a lamb running somewhere. So they say, oh, that golden fleece is this. It's not very convincing, so the next chancellor, he's called Abbe Guillaume Filatre, he finds four, uh, five more, and then the story of uh, Jason and the Argonauts, he combines them all into one package where each lamb that he finds in one story of the Bible is given a virtue, so you have a total of six virtues that are representative of Christianity. So it's sort of mudding it up, but they're giving it a sort of explanation that is rooted in the Bible to make it look Christian. That's exactly what they do on the Persian side. You have a skin throne that is not Islamic. They call it Sajjadeh doesn't stick very well. They have to find a uh, Islamic camouflage for it. They open the Quran, the sacrifice of Abraham. They say Abraham, instead of uh, sacrificing his son, he sacrificed a lamb. So this is the skin of the lamb. So when they want, they can open the book and find a justification why this is acceptable. Um, I wanted to show you that in Safavid time, uh, they had, they, we have a number of images that describe the opponent of the Safavid regime as thieves. This is before Ismail came to power. And um, I'll skip over because it's, it's getting late. It's one of the reasons is they had brought in from China a tale uh, of a demon, a man called Zhang Kui. He was a demon queller. He was clubbing the demons and the demons were uh, at his command. He gave his sister uh, to marriage to one of these demons. This gave an idea in the Safavid court because uh, the Sultan there had given his marriage, in marriage, his sister to the Safavid dervishes. And so they got the idea that we can call these dervishes as demons. There was a second reason. This name, the name Dev that was so now demonized in 
in certain region of Iran, in northern Iran, Div was a very respectable name. So you have a lot of rulers in whose name was with Div, Shamsuddin Div, Muhammad Div, and so forth. The Safavid themselves, their leaders, some of them was called Div Sultan. So Div was a respectable name in certain regions of Iran. So they decided uh, in the Safavid court to depict the enemies. I'm sorry, this is the Akboyulu court. This is the Turkmen court. They are before the Safavids. Uh, this is in the year 1470s, 1478. They depict the Safavids the dervishes that later on take the reins of power under Shah Ismail, they depict them as divs. And you see all kind of divs that are depicted in there. And they are dancing, they are drinking wine, as you see up there, and they are devouring animals. And that's in reference because the Safavids devoured their enemies. It's, they were cannibalists. And uh, even in later Safavid times, they had a shock trooper that the Shah will order that you should eat your enemy. So it, 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 these were very um, different kind of dervishes. We call them dervishes, but very, they were very, very crude dervishes. They were a little bit like ISIS today. They would, uh, they would really devour their enemies. But uh, as you see, the, the robes that were, they were um, wearing is, is these red robes. And uh, these are all um, robes that they inherited from the Mithraic past. I will quickly go into two other aspects of Mithraism. Um, I, I did not wish to pursue the, um, what effect that Mithraism had on Christianity. But it seems that at the beginning, because it was an underground movement, Christianity very much saw in the organizations that the Mithraic had a system that it can emulate. And they probably got very much enmeshed together to the extent that a lot of things that you have in Christianity from uh, the red hat, uh, the red robe of the bishop. In fact, the hat of the bishop is called mitre in reference to Mithra. And, and you, you see the, the, uh, that you have among the Belavi um, dervishes in Konya, in Turkey, a hat that is, looks like a mitre of a bishop. But it, uh, Christianity has kept a lot of symbols, especially at an early stage, from, um, from uh, Mithraism. Uh, on, the, on an ivory pla plaque that you see on the right, uh, Virgin Mary and the infant Jesus, but on the top left and right corner, you see a sun god and a moon god. Uh, Sunday and Monday are still very much with us today uh, as a remnant of that uh, closeness that they had to the Mithraic um, congregations. In early um, Christian churches, you have symbols that combine the symbol on the left, a sun and a shell. 
sun and the shell, sun is a symbol of Mithra, the shell is the symbol of Apamnapat, and they combined it together. This was something that was banned in Iran, but in the plaque that you see below, you see a saint, Saint Simeon, above whom you have a shell. He himself is wearing a Mithraic bonnet, the Phrygian bonnet, and you have a Mithraic uh, snake going around him. But I'm uh, bringing this out because Christianity created a niche that comprised a symbol of Apamnapat, which was the shell, and a symbol of the sun or fire underneath. As you see in the center, you have a Last Supper uh, scene, but is surmounted by a shell and two fires on the two sides. That's why in Islam, in the first uh, mosque that was in, in which we had a mihrab created, it was in Medina by Al-Walid in, in uh, about 80 years after uh, the Hijra, it was copied after this Christian niche that included a shell on top and fire underneath. And you see on the left side where the mihrab still has light and fire and candles underneath. On top, the shell is now being transformed into something else which is called Mogarnas, but inside those Mogarnas you have got shell signs. The mihrab on the right is about 120 years after uh, Hijra, and it's the one built in the Al-Mansur Mosque. It's still, in, uh, this one is in the Baghdad Museum, hopefully. In Iran, because Apamnapat was pushed away, that symbol of the um, shell did not exist. There are one or two examples only. The one at, on the bottom is in the Persepolis Museum, it was dug out of a mosque in Estakh, which itself had used this from, a, from the Hellenistic period. This was uh, a piece from a Hellenistic period monument that was integrated in an Islamic uh, mosque. Now, I would like to finish with something. Um, a quotation from Matthew. Um, it's Jesus who saying to the apostles, his followers, that um, you should not be addressed as rabbi, as, as teacher, because you have only one teacher, and that's God above. And you should never call anybody on earth as father, because you only have one father. Now Matthew is the oldest of the all, all of the Gospels, so for Christianity it, this creates a lot of problem because obviously in this verse um, not only Jesus is the son of that father but all his followers are also treated as son of the, that father. But what's important is Jesus is apparently seeing other organizations where 
they are organized with the father on top. And he doesn't like this, rightfully so. Because no matter how much that brotherhood is communal, is friendly, and there is loyalty among them, the moment you create a hierarchy, the moment you have a father who has a certain power, he can be a good person, but he can also push you towards something that is not good. He can push you towards good, but he can push you towards bad. And that's why in these brotherhoods, you have all kinds of organizations. In the Roman period, you have as members pirates and legionaries. In Iran, you have lots, lutis, you have Jawan Mars, you have dervishes, you have good guys, you have bad guys. The one underneath is the representation of a gang, the Vorvizakon, who is the mafia gang of Russia. And these, you have two symbols, two sun symbols on their shoulders. It's the one that the founder of the Sassanid Empire, Popak, the father of Ardashir, you see on the left side, he had it on his shoulders. You have the same symbol on seals, on uh, rings of the Mitraic pater or father. And you see on the right side a chivalry order which is um, dispensing knighthood and he has a solar emblem also there. So it can go toward good or bad depending on how that fatherly persona will conduct these. Thank you very much. The gymnasiums in Iran uh, that are called Zulukhani, uh, is there any, any foundation as to those places having been associated or been, having had any uh, relation to basically Mithraic uh, temples which were underneath? And that is the case uh, throughout many of the original uh, Zulukhanis in, in Iran. Uh, even in the region of Azerbaijan, there are uh, places of that, and they are all located next to rivers or waters or creeks. Uh, the late Mehrdad Bahar once suggested that, and he was clobbered by saying that, no, 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 the, uh, there's no relationship between the Zulkhane because they're invoking Ali in their uh, procedures and so forth. So uh, the, these organizations, or all avatars, of the Mithraic societies. They've inherited certain procedures, certain symbols. In the Zulkhane, they have that leather short pad. They have a sunken forum. That's where they fight, which is, as you saw in the Mithraeum, it's sunken. Then they have water. So they have a lot of symbols and procedures that they have inherited from these past organizations. They don't know it. They don't want to pretend that. But the most important one is the very name Pahlavan. At the very start, what I said as Parsa, 
this is a word that had two different pronunciations. In the early Iran, in the Persian part, it was called Parthaba. In the Eastern Iranian world, it was called Parthaba. And both meant the same thing, two different pronunciations. Parthaba became Pahlav, and the word Persian today, Pahlu, which is near. And that's where the idea that Pahlu means next to the fire. And there was a hierarchy built on Pahlav. The word was called Pahlom, Pahlu Om. Whoever is closer to fire is more prestigious. So Pahlav or Pahlavan is the same word as Parsa. In fact, a lot of dervishes, Khaji Abu Nasr Parsa, has the name Parsa as an epithet in it. So they all come, but now that distant past is forgotten. When do Zoroastrian temples start to be called doors to meet, and why? Uh, I think Zoroastrianism brought everything that was around inside in the new creed that they created. Now, Suryan Malikyan has written an article about the Mehrab and what he tried to justify was to say that the Mehrab is a two-dimensional projection of the Sasanian Chartok which is a canopy over fire and so you project it on a two-dimensional you squash it in you have that Mehrab like this and you have the fire underneath or a lamp underneath. Etymologically, the earliest references that we have for mehrab, even prior to Islam, is the mehrab is the focal point of a ceremonial hall, it's, or in the house, is the most important place. There are two, perhaps, reasons of the appellation Daramir. Because fire is very much associated with Mithra. And when it was incorporated into Zoroastrianism, fire remained very closely attached to Mithra, but also became almost a symbol of Zoroastrianism itself. So when you see the projection of this canopy on the wall, which becomes the mehrab, it is presented almost as a gateway. You have the same things on in Freemasonry. You have these canopies represented as a gateway. So you have in a num and then you have a number of mosaic floors that have been discovered in Israel. They call them synagogues. They're not. They are 
the floors of Mithraic gathering places. And in there, this canopied structure under which there is fire, in many instances, they look like gateways. So Dare Mer, it's sort of a gateway towards Mithra. But the original is not Dare Mer, it's Dare Mer. They say Dare Mer, it's not clear. We have one revayat uh, that says this structure needs to have four doors. So it's, it's not clear whether it is they let, let me show you something else uh, this is a Freemasonry emblem and what you see around it in the um, in the triangle is the Zoroastrian motto in French uh, which is, can be translated good thought, good speech and good action. So why would this go into Freemasonry? Because these were mottos that existed in pre-Zoroastrian. And as it comes down, it goes there. The dervishes have that too. Now, you can say this is a coincidence, but I was flabbergasted when I saw a document, the one on the right, Freemasonry factions are fighting with each other, and one of them says, we're noble because we have the virtues of wisdom, truth, and social love. These are the exact three words that you find in the Qabusname as qualities that the Javan Mardi must have. So this Javan Mardi, this, all of these good things were incorporated into Zoroastrianism because they existed. So they took everything that was good and some of it went elsewhere. So maybe Daramer or Darbemer was from that. But the image that we have has a fire underneath and in the Mehrab you have a fire or a sunburst underneath. So. Thank you very much. The, the, the symbol of Aura Mazda that you showed in the beginning, the, the, the old man in the wing, uh, was that adopted by Darius, or was it really a true symbol of Aura Mazda? Because uh, I, I think that uh, Sasanians never used that, so is there any explanation for that? The model is something that existed all over the Middle East. Babylon, Assyria, Ilam, they all had that as the model of a powerful god. Today, Zoroastrians call this Fravahar, or the Faravashi. But nowhere in the Avesta, you have a description of the Fravahar or Fravashi having a conversation with man or with Zoroaster, with the king or anybody. And in most images, you see Avro Mazda making a sign like this, and the king reciprocating that. So there's a conversation between. So this is a god conversing with the king. The first one, archaeologically, that we have is Darius. Now, Darius goes through two different stages of defining the symbol. 
as I tried to say, Darius at the beginning was experimenting. So he took this Babylonian mostly, or Assyrian symbol, which had square wings. The wings are square, the tips are square at the end. Then, because he had been to Egypt, he sees that the Egypt, the Egyptian one, is much more elegant and it has curved. And then he decides for the far, he has to have a symbol, and that symbol is again a symbol that existed elsewhere. It's wings at the center of which you have a symbol. It's that pearl. You have concentric, it's that pearl. Because, at least in the Avesta, if the far is there, until you sin or you make something wrong, then this bird called Varekna, it takes it away. So as long as this bird is still there, it shows that you are in possession. Now, Darius has to combine, like the Medes, two ideologies into one. The fact that Ahura Mazda is powerful, and he must bring the Khwarna in it. Uh, I don't have the picture of it, but in one of the symbols in Persepolis, you see it clearly. That little man, bearded man, Ahura Mazda, is riding the Khwarna. It's beneath his feet. So he's, they created this ideology that Ahura Mazda was only the creator of Khwarna. He is not the one who gives it. He's not the one who takes it back. In the Avesta, it's still Mithra. Mithra gives it and can take it back. But to give the justification for the greatness of our Mazda, he is said to be the creator of uh, the Khwarna. That idea is not a Zoroastrian idea. That idea was Darius's and Darius's bureaucracy. They created that, and later on, Zoroastrian. So a lot of things that we see in Zoroastrianism, these explanations, these accommodations, uh, they were created by the Achaemenids. The Zoroastrians then followed them. On that note, uh, going from the bipolar that you talked about this bit in to uh, transformation to Avramazad as a single mentioned that the Magi consulted the power to try to bring in from other factions to accommodate everyone. And you mentioned, therefore, we get the gods coming back into stuff a vision that uh, Zarathustra didn't have, as you said. So could you elaborate a little bit more on that? So all the Fereshtes or Deeds or Demons that we hear in Avesta has nothing to do with Zoroastrianism per se, the way Zoroaster uh, talked about these things. It's, you, you know, I, I only studied this from a few angles, so there might be a lot more angles. The, the way I see it, my good friend John Kellens, with whom I always fight, because he thinks that uh, Zoroaster never existed, and he's, um, he has seen, rightfully so, two. Let me come. The Avesta is 
a combination of hymns that you must recite. So it's not really a holy book, but it, it's a procedure like today they recite du'as. So it's a combination of these du'as. Uh, they had two sections. One was really trying to promote Anahita. One was trying to promote uh, Apamnapat. You see that in parallel, they're giving the same powers to Apamnapat and Anahita, but they are two different ways. So at the end of the Achaemenid period, in the kingly inscriptions, you all see that. Because Artaxerxes II, who was challenged by his own brother Cyrus. Cyrus was in Anatolia. According to Xenophon, Cyrus is bringing back the procedures of the Magi. And they have to fight. It's a big fight. Artaxerxes II becomes victorious. But whenever a king is challenged in Iranian history, he goes back and creates an image. And on that image, he must show the support of the gods. The most important gods are the gods who are responsible for the Khwarna. That's why he needs two gods. One is the one who can bestow. That they all accept is Mithra. The problem is, who is the counterpart? Artaxerxes II brings in Anahita. She is an aquatic god. So already there, we have Ahura Mazda, we have Mithra, and we have Anahita in the inscription of Artaxerxes II. Clearly, after him, Artaxerxes III does not believe in Anahita. He drops out Anahita. He says, by the power of Ahura Mazda, and Mithra, may this palace be preserved. So you see there is tension. One takes two gods. The other one drops one. He doesn't want a Pamna, but he probably believes. In the Sasanian period, you have kings that are for Apamnapat. You have kings who are for Anahita. Now, by extension, you have all these other gods who are also incorporated into the Avesta. But when you read the original Gathas, Zoroaster has only praise for one god. He's lamenting, he's in conversation with him. It is one god, and that is Ahura Mazda. Uh, this is uh, tangential to the main uh, theme of the talk, but uh, you mentioned the uh, Ismailis promoted Shiism, uh, and I was wondering what was the underlying motivation. One explanation we were given back in the school was that that was the only way he preserved Iran from being subsumed in Ottoman uh, by distinction among the religion, but, but I haven't kind of a very coherent story at why Ismailis gravitated to Shiism and how. Uh, the, the dervishes that were the power base of Shah Ismail, they're, they're not Ismailis, it's Shah Ismail. Shah Ismail is the scene of the Safavid dervishes. 
At the beginning, these were holy dervishes. After three generations, one guy comes and he becomes a militant. So he changes the course of the Safavid dervish dynasty. They become militant, they go to war, they attack Georgia, they do these horrible things there. They rape, they loot, they do all these things. Their ideology is one ideology, a reverence for the Imam Ali. Today there are remnants of these factions, of these dervishes in Anatolia. They're called the Alevis. They call them Alevis and Qazilbash because in Iran the followers of the Safavis had a red hat because they had a Mithraic red hat. And this Mithraic red hat in Turkish is Bosch, Gazelle means red, Gazelbosch meant red hat. And in Anatolia, they're still called Alavi and Gazelbosch. And they still have this reverence for Ali. And I relate one story in my book that in some of these communities, they have a big serpent, they come. On certain date, they unwrap this serpent, they all touch it because they think that it can cure diseases and so forth. It, within these Alavid Kazelbash congregations, you have still a serpent or scorpions and all these things that come from a Mithraic past that they don't know, probably. Could you do a fun question? Yeah. Do me a favor and tell them where they can uh, uh, download your book. I forgot to tell them that. Okay. Sorry. Uh, my, my book is uh, downloadable as a PDF. It's on my website, com or academia.edu. So the whole book in color is uh, downloadable. And, and uh, the advantage of it is you can blow up the pictures uh, when you download them and you can see much better than on a book, actually. Uh, our bookstore brought some copies. Uh, those who came early uh, had the good fortune of getting them. Uh, Dr. Sudhavar has agreed to sign the, those copies if you want them. There is someone from the bookstore still there. If you want to order them, they can order and send it to you. Uh, otherwise, you can read it online uh, for free. For free. Uh, thank you very much. Is it because they were secretive, secretive or, and also they didn't have a figure? I think it's because once the Roman Empire adopted Christianity, Constantine adopted Christianity, the Christians felt that the Roman Empire was theirs. Okay. Then comes 